Hello there, welcome back. This is NLEX's weekly podcast covering the biggest stories in the world of regulation. I'm James Paniki from NLEX's Asia-Pacific team. It's great to be with you again. Now, in just over 10 minutes' time, we'll bring you a great antitrust yarn. And let me ask you this. Why did the European Commission show up in a US courtroom recently? It's one of those tail-wagging-the-dog stories. It's also an illustration of the perils of a lawsuit that's got ahead of the very antitrust enforcement that sparked it. First up, though, if you weren't already familiar with the platform, the COVID-19 pandemic may have introduced you to Zoom, the conferencing software that has taken off over recent years. Zoom has agreed to an $85 million settlement to compensate those who were affected by meeting disruptions by attackers posting offensive material. It's an unusual development, but one that Zoom appears ready to accept. Amy Miller is our senior correspondent covering antitrust and privacy issues from San Francisco, and she joins me now. So, Amy, let's start from the very beginning here. Why was Zoom in legal trouble in the first place? Well, uh, long story short, it was Zoom bombings. Um, So-called Zoom bombings got the attention of lawmakers in the early days of the pandemic when everyone was using Zoom to work from home. And basically, Internet trolls were exploiting a screen sharing feature on Zoom to hijack meetings and post some really offensive comments and content. Um, and then um, regulators got into the into the game. They started asking questions, trying to find out what was going on. And users began filing lawsuits, too, against Zoom in March 2020. And they were just describing a litany of dystopian you know, horror stories about racist postings and other uh, offensive conduct that interrupted their public meetings. And um, all those lawsuits were eventually consolidated in San Jose, California, before Judge Lucy Coe. So just to be clear, these lawsuits were brought by people who had been the target, the victims of Zoom bombings, right? That's correct, yes. They were just average, ordinary Zoom users that were trying to log on to public meetings and hear what was happening, and they were subjected to uh, some offensive content. Okay, now given that there is no denying that these Zoom bombings did in fact take place, one option for the company would have been to just agree to settle the lawsuits right away uh, and I suppose try to mitigate uh, the the bad press. Did Zoom take that option? Uh, not initially. Zoom uh, tried to use a controversial legal shield to escape the claims. That's Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And that protects websites from legal liability for the content that users post. And tech companies have successfully re- relied on that statute for years uh, to escape lawsuits over third-party content. But it's been in the news a lot lately because politicians, both Democrats and Republicans, are arguing that the Section 230 legal shield is just too broad and needs to be rolled back to keep uh, big tech companies in check. You know, they've got different perspectives. Uh, Republicans think they're um, trying to uh, censor conservative voices, and Democrats think they're um, wielding too much monopoly power and that this is one way to kind of keep them in check is to roll back Section 230. Okay, and Section 230 we've discussed many times before, I suppose, in relation to the the notion of platforms not being sued for things like uh, defamation, so for things that might be posted by uh, users. Now, the question is whether or not Judge Coe uh, was prepared to buy the argument that 230 should also extend to something like uh, Zoom bombings. Was she prepared to see the the protections of Section 230 extended in this way to video conference calls? 
Well, she did and she didn't. Um, in an order last March, she said that uh, users can't hold Zoom liable for injuries stemming from the heinousness, quote-unquote, of the content that was posted by third parties under Section 230. That even it even extends to offensive Zoom bombings. As appalling as the content is, Co said, um, Zoom's failure to block that content is, is the very activity that Congress sought to immunize under, under Section 230. But there are limits. You know, Section 230's protections are not uh, without restraint. And Co also said that Section 230 doesn't protect Zoom against claims that the Zoom bombings violated its contract with users. Uh, the contract claims don't challenge the harmfulness of the third-party content, she said, and they don't stem from Zoom's status as the publisher of that content. So, therefore, she allowed those content claims to move forward despite Section 230 arguments. And then uh, Zoom announced it was settling uh, on July 31st, just a few weeks later. Okay, well, let's talk about the settlement uh, that Zoom has put forward. Um, how do users stand to benefit from this settlement? Well, it's an unusual privacy settlement in that it actually gives some money to users. Uh, if the deal is approved by Co, Zoom subscribers will be eligible for 15% refunds on their core subscriptions or $25, uh, whichever is larger, and everyone else could get up to uh, $15. Uh, but Zoom also agreed to implement some additional security measures. Um, they're going to be alerting users when uh, meeting hosts or other participants use third-party apps in meetings. Um, they're going to provide specialized training to employees on privacy and data handling. And uh, Zoom's going to make sure that its privacy statements disclose that users can share data with third parties. But it, it, it introduced some restrictions uh, and said it's not going to reintegrate Facebook's trackers for iOS into Zoom meetings for a year. Uh, that was another part of these lawsuits that these third-party companies like Facebook were getting some of this information and um, the users weren't mm. aware. Okay, so can we consider this a good outcome, a good deal for users? I think in the fact that it's getting some that users are getting some cash payments, I think that's a pretty good thing. Like I said, it's class members in these privacy cases rarely get direct payments as part of a settlement, except when there are claims involving the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, uh, which provides for damages of between one thousand and five thousand dollars per violation. So those can add up really quickly. Um, Facebook settled a uh, lawsuit with BIPA over BIPA violations for six hundred fifty million dollars recently. So this is this is not uh, anywhere close to that. But we are seeing increasingly that these companies are are, are forking over uh, actual cash uh, to users. Uh, because the judges are letting these claims move forward. In the past, most privacy lawsuits against tech companies like Facebook or Google have typically settled uh, with so-called Cypre payments. And those, th instead of going to people, um, class members, those payments will typically go to various privacy groups and universities. That's because judges, these claims were not very um, strong. Judges would usually dismiss these privacy claims early on, finding that the consumers hadn't alleged that they'd suffered any real harm. But that's changing. Judges are increasingly allowing privacy claims to move forward in federal court, and as in this case uh, against Zoom. So we'll know what Judge Coe thinks about the deal at, uh, at a preliminary settlement hearing uh, that's slated for October 21st. Amy, great talking as always. Hopefully uh, the next time we uh, catch up, neither one of us will have been Zoom bombed, so we won't have this uh, topic to talk about. But I'll speak to you again very, very soon. <laughs> great. Thank you, James.
Amy Miller is a senior correspondent for MLEX covering privacy and antitrust issues from Silicon Valley. And her analysis of the Zoom bombing settlement is ready for you to read and enjoy on the sunny side of the paywall. It's at mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just head for the News Hub tab where you'll find the very best of MLEX's regulatory reporting and analysis. You're with MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Paniki. Thank you for making it this far. Coming up, the European Commission's fight for the right to keep the details of its antitrust enforcement efforts under lock and key. And don't forget you can subscribe to the MLEX podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. The European Commission has made a rare appearance in a US court to call for the non-disclosure of evidence, evidence that the EU regulator says is crucial to its ability to run investigations. The evidence related to European enforcement targeting the salmon industry, and that raises the question, what were the documents doing in an American court in the first place? Lewis Crofts is MLEX's editor-in-chief, and he joins me now from Brussels. So, Lewis, this is what it has come to, the European Commission uh, turning up in a US courtroom to talk about fish. That's right, James. This is what it's come to. Um, After all the big tech, you know, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, it's all about salmon. (laughs) So um, the latest twist uh, in EU-US relations has been uh, a case in an American court where uh, it's a damage claim against uh, a handful of companies who are salmon farmers, essentially, but one, don't, don't imagine this is one man and his fishing rod. Uh, these are massive mega businesses um, and companies like uh, Greek Seafood, Leroy Seafood, Salmar, uh, companies like that. And the, the twist is that they're under investigation in Europe for a potential cartel, but in America, uh, some customers who feel fear they've suffered have taken these companies to court looking for damages. And in order to substantiate their damage claim, they want the Europeans to send information to an American court to help that happen. And that's the tricky thing. So just to be clear, the two things are related. So the litigation going on in the US court relates to the exact issue, the exact alleged cartel that the European Commission is investigating. That's correct. And that in itself is not extraordinary. You get a lot of um, investigations uh, and events, harms, abuses that are found by other regulators, Europe being um, one investigating authority, which often throws these things up. And the litigation ends up in America. America has a very mature litigation market with lots of um, very wise lawyers and very wise judges to handle these things. So that in itself is not extraordinary what is what was extraordinary here was that the uh, plaintiffs in america wanted access to european commission documents and what this did is it dragged the european commission the august institution from brussels to a american courtroom before an american judge to say please don't make us hand over these documents now obviously the european commission didn't do it itself it got itself a lawyer um an american lawyer to do it And it um, appeared before the judge and said, you know, initially said, I'm not part of this litigation. It's got nothing to do with me. It's to do with the the customers and the salmon farmers. Um, But please, can you hear me? Please, please can I come to the table and please can I say my piece? And what it said was, 
Um, this cartel investigation in Europe is still ongoing. If you force me to, halfway through my investigation, hand over documents that I've got, it will affect my ability to prosecute this crime. The companies, the public, the plaintiffs will know what I'm looking at, will know how far along I've got, what companies, what time period, what kind of conduct, whether I've got very far, whether I've done very much, whether I've done a lot. And any investigator, be they police, you know, FBI, DEA, whatever, they want to keep their the nuts and bolts of their investigation confidential while they work out where they're going. And having them thrown out into a US courtroom is not um, conducive to uh, continuing with an investigation. It's also extraordinary because there would be an argument to be made that it would be in the interest of those bringing the, the lawsuit in the United States to let the European Commission complete its investigation and then take whatever the findings were and then bring them before the US court. But it's, it's obviously an issue of timing, isn't it? It, it is. Um, but you've, you've hit the nail on the head in so far as what the judge has to do is say, OK, the interests of the European Commission are important. Um, European Commission's not part of this case. And it, it is, um, it's not a, a litigant here. But I've also got, I'm the US judge, I've got the interests of the parties to think about. What about the poor victims that possibly have been suffering a potential alleged cartel for years? Surely they've got rights too. And they have to, the judge has to weigh the rights of the plaintiffs in this case against the rights of the European Commission and also and also the defendants. What she did, there are two two arguments. One is weighing the interests, and she said uh, she equated it to uh, what would happen with the American police enforcement or drug enforcement, and they also would want to keep their the U.S. judge would usually also keep American. Uh, drug enforcement, police enforcement, Department of Justice enforcement documents under wraps. She equated it to that kind of situation and said, you know, if we were looking at the American enforcers here, then I would I would also not disclose these documents. The European Commission advocate also said, you know, imagine if the boot was on the other foot. Imagine if this was a French court case and it was the Department of Justice before a Paris judge saying, please don't hand over my documents, these documents from America, these invested documents from America, please don't hand those over to someone in France, then likely the American government and the American authorities would also weigh in pretty heavily in that French court. And so balancing those interests was the first thing that the judge did. She didn't have to get to the second argument, which is quite an interesting one. And the second argument is about something called comity, which doesn't really mean much uh, to, to your average person. But comedy is essentially, can you please respect a foreign institution? We are all, we the courts and the regulators and the enforcers, are all part of some international community of enforcers. And while there are no obligations between us, there are no treaties between us, we should still not do stuff that makes their life more difficult. And it's a general sort of a principle of comedy is that, you know, please, uh, when we do our thing, when we, when we, you know, order disclosure or undertake investigations or put people um, or arrest people, we should do things which don't make life more difficult for um, our fellow enforcers in another place. And the European Commission um, has come up against this problem a few times and has always written to the judge in question saying, look, we're, we're all part of the same family here. Can we just not tread on each other's toes? 
And so obviously they've had some success in doing that. I mean, can the EU simply just turn up uh, to a foreign court? I take your point that they've no doubt hired local lawyers, but is this something that is done regularly, that a foreign agency would appear in an American court? Um, in the in the years that I've been covering this, it's, it is certainly rare. Uh, there is occasionally the risk that this happens, uh, probably, I don't know, half a dozen times over the last few years, um, has the European Commission been in a situation where it sees a risk to its investigations because the documents are going to leach out in American court? It nearly always sends a standard letter to the court written aside by a high ranking official saying, please, judge, don't release these documents because you would undermine our investigative, our, this particular investigation, but more broadly, our investigative authority. And nearly always it wins. A couple of times, many, many moons ago, it lost. Um, but now there is a standard um, letter that goes and a standard set of arguments um, that usually uh, get rolled out and they're usually convincing. There is a chance later on that the commission loses because the judge would say, look, right now, when this investigation is going on in Brussels, we don't want to endanger that. But when a moment comes when that investigation is, is finished, when the salmon farms have been fined, when there is no risk to the investigative integrity of, of the Brussels machinery, there must be a point where we can release these documents. So plaintiffs, if you ask me in a couple of years, then maybe I might hand them over. And I think that also has to be right, is that you can't keep things under wrap forever. The European Commission likes to, likes to say these documents are sensitive. Even if I, if you, even if I disclose them many years later, it might still reveal some of the magic of my investigators. You know, you think about government documents which are kept in archives for 50 years before they're released, you know, and they still could fight the good fight for many years into the future saying we shouldn't release these documents ever, or certainly we should wait a long time. But the judge indicated, and judges will indicate, hang on, come, there comes a point where these are sort of you know, past their past their sell by date, and the risk to an investigation um, passes, and so we can hand them over to the plaintiffs. Mm. But are we absolutely certain that that's the case? That it's not just the EU saying that it would suffer irreparable damage if these documents were uh, released? I mean, surely these are just documents. The EU investigation could continue. It wouldn't be the end of the world, would it? Uh, that's one of the arguments that the plaintiffs made, and they pointed to instances many moons ago when the documents, where some documents were disclosed, and they said, look, it didn't derail the investigations back then. You know, don't don't buy the argument of the European Commission. What the European Commission says is that um, these particular documents that they're trying to protect are not just sort of general ones that you you know price lists that you find in the top drawer of the marketing manager's desk. These are documents which a company has created because it is cooperating, often in some sort of whistleblower program, with the EU investigators. These documents are made specifically for this investigation. They are, they are often drafted in order to reveal details of the cartel in exchange for a lesser fine. So if you were to, if there was a risk that these documents come out, then companies will not want to cooperate with the commission. Why would they reveal the dirty inner workings of a cartel if a year or two later that just ends up being disclosed into an American courtroom and causing them have to pay out, you know, hundreds of millions in damages? It, they'll get, you know, bitten on the bum by their willingness to cooperate with Brussels just ends up hurting them in an American court. So that's the European Commission's argument is that these documents are 
all about the incentives to cooperate, to reveal, um, to reveal cartel conduct, and that helps the enforcer do its job. And if you if you chill that incentive, then it'll be more difficult to uncover cartels. Lewis, this is a fascinating uh, story. So thank you so much for uh, covering it and for uh, taking us through it today. Goodbye, James. Lewis Crofts, MLEX's Editor-in-Chief, speaking to me from Brussels. And Lewis's report on this issue is ready for you to read. MLEXmarketinsight.com is the website. That's MLEXmarketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab. And with that, sadly, it's time for me to bid you farewell. But I can give you a rock-solid guarantee that we'll be back in your feed next week at more or less the same time for the biggest regulatory stories of the moment. My name is James Paniki, and from everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for listening. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now.